Welcome to RIYL. I'm Dan Kennedy, filling in for Brian Heater, who is out sick on a non-COVID-related note and should be back soon. In the spirit of short introductions, let me just tell you that Brian sat down with Colin Newman from the band Wire, a band that has been making music since 1977, a band that is, to me, at once intimidatingly cool and also unbelievably accessible for a band that has remained so totally uncompromised in their creative vision. Pick any album, play that album or track, and before you know it, you're down a wonderful rabbit hole that is decades deep. Maybe you came by Wire in a very cool way. Maybe you discovered them on your own. I am not that cool. Uh, I didn't know about Wire until R.E.M. covered their song Strange on their album Document in 1987. I learned a lot today listening to Brian Heater interview Colin Newman from Wire. Basically, I have a, a pool of 17 hours of music from which I can choose at random. So I can, I'm actually, I mean, every, the four people of the band, completely different the way they approach DJing. And music, my, it sounds my, like. Yeah, and music. And my approach is very much, um, I've just gone through and selected a bunch of tracks and I want to actually DJ. I want to choose on the night what I play. I want to, and about reading the crowd, I don't know about, I, I'm really not a professional DJ, but I, I, I want to have the experience of like, I'm going to play that track and then yeah, see how that went and see, yeah, see how this other one goes or if anybody takes any notes at all, you know. 17 hours, that's just, you have a hard drive full of 17 hours of music or laptop, but very specifically for. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I, cre- I, yeah. I created a, created a, you know, a basically a pool, of, yeah. a list, a, a playlist. I assume this is not your first time DJing. I've DJed of- quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, but mate, I've tended to cheat a bit, you know, and prepare a lot beforehand. And mm-hmm. this time I thought, no, the preparation will be the selection. But, the, but I just get a, get the right software, the right hardware, and just actually do it for real. Is there a sense, though, of what plays particularly well in front of one of your sets? No. No. <laughs> no idea at all. I really have no idea. Yeah. I think it depends very, very much on the crowd and very much on how they feel that the DJ is present. Just in terms of how you're actually sort of interacting? I mean, yeah, are, how are you, you... How you're perceived on the stage. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're basically saying they're pushing buttons on a laptop, right? Or yeah, is there... so I'm, I'm, I'm selecting tracks, yeah, basically. Yeah. You, either, you either kind of get into it because you think, oh, well, that's really interesting, yeah. track selection. Or I didn't know that person liked that record or whatever. Or, you know, or they just, people just think, oh, it's just the music before the band comes mm-hmm. on, you know. I get the sense that one of the common themes of the bands over the decades has been the fact that, like, there's not a lot of overlap when it comes to the music that each of you enjoy. There's some, yeah. to be quite honest. There is some. But uh, there's, um, we have quite, we do have different tastes, yeah, in music. What brought you together musically? Um, you know, it sounds like you're quite different people. That's a whole story of how that came together. Yeah. So uh, it's quite a famous story. It was a kind of uh, an, an end of term art school kind of band that was put together, which involved myself, Bruce Gilbert, and a guy called George Gill. 
and uh, we played this one gig and we were terrible. We were played George's songs basically, and but we felt for some reason that we should continue. And the three of us play, were playing through one amp in my bedroom in Watford, and then we found a bass player and a drummer, namely Graham and Robert. We played as a five-piece for a while, still playing George's songs. Then George broke his leg trying to steal an amplifier from a from some band, and he went in hospital. And classic, you know, band style. We started rehearsing without him, and the first thing we discovered was that his songs sounded a lot better without him in them. And then so it was. And then a friend suggested that we get rid of him, so we did. And then Graham came came. And said, I can write text. And I said, I can write tunes. He handed me the text to low down. And that's how we started. So it's almost chance. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, when, when, the, when Paul suggested, you know, maybe you should get rid of George. He's holding you back. I mean, he was pushing it an open door. I mean, not that we'd even discussed it. I mean, typical, typical bands, you don't talk about anything ever, especially when you're in the twenties. You know. It almost had, it just hadn't even really occurred to you at the time. No, that it hadn't occurred. It hadn't, hadn't occurred. It's just, just stuff happens. Sure. It, it wasn't like anyone was thinking, it had some big forward plan. It was just getting to the next gig, getting playing gigs that were, people thought were, were any good. And for us to think that we were any good ourselves. You didn't have your sights necessarily set on being superstars at the time. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> no, I mean, more like the aim, the aim was to be good. And then it became obvious that what Why Was was an artistic project. I mean, it has been since more or less day one. The songwriting process hasn't really changed all that much. On one basic level, no. I mean, I still, you know, in the history of Why, I've written, I don't know, between 70 and 80%, maybe mm. over 80% of the tunes. I've never done a calculation on it. Sure. Uh, Graham has written quite a lot of the text. Yeah. But other people have written things as well. Um, but that's kind of how it is, especially over the last 10 years. I mean, it's either stuff written by Graham and I together or me writing on my own or Graham writing on his own. Those, those are the songwriting combinations that we have now. Are the group of you generally isolated from one another when it's not time to tour or to play in studio? We're in constant communication. Yeah. Remember that, you know, there's a record company, which I run. So I'm communicating with the band all the time mm -hmm. about lots of things. So, yeah, we're, we're talking by email, um, not necessarily socialising, but, I mean, we're talking by email and, and just making decisions. You know, you have to plan things an awful long time ahead. You yeah. can't just do, you can't do anything, you know, with five minutes notice. I mean, you have to be, you know, making an album. I mean, the, you know, Mind Hive started, the initial recording was in September 2018. Hmm. That was when the process started. Oh, and I already knew that we were going for a January 2020 release date at that point. There's a sense after each album, after each tour, that this is going to continue on indefinitely? Um, I think um, we've got, we're getting to an age now when we have to think about what we do in the future. So I think this year, although it appears that we're doing quite a lot if you compare it to like 10 years ago we're you just you announced less. a west coast tour yeah. today yeah we're doing we're actually doing much less it's hard to do usa in less dates than we're doing but we're not we're not doing 
the six week wham bam go everywhere tour. We're doing a short tour, uh, on the, on the, on the East Coast and the middle and, and a short tour on the West Coast. That's how, that's kind of how we're arranging things. European tour is one week. British tour was one week. What are the kind of practical day to day considerations when it comes to, I don't know, I guess just being, getting older and being on tour? Well, if you think about the fact that, you know, I mean, with Wire, Wire has gone through, if you think about it historically, it's gone through phases when it ceased to, ceased to exist. And that's mm. partly because the reasons for doing it became less important than the reasons for not doing it. <laughs> Um, what, is, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, that means exactly what you want to interpret <laughs> it to mean. Yeah. Um, I mean, like and, and personal I think, drama, or I think I think the I think one of the things that has been going on over the last well, really twenty years, mm. more more formally in the last ten years, is a process by which everybody's ideas are accommodated. So you don't get to that point where you know somebody thinks it's okay to drive the bus off the cliff, you know. So and one of those things is you know a management of expectation of what anybody really wants out of it. People want to be able to do it, but they don't want to be. And that I think applies to everybody really. I mean, some of us approaching our seventies, you don't want to be in a situation where you're touring away from home a lot of the time because you need the money to live. Yeah. I mean, we're in a very good position now because we fundamentally own our 70s catalogue, which is a source of income, and it continues to be a source of income month on month, which puts us in a much better position. And so that when we're releasing new things and doing new things, that's kind of icing on top of that. So it, it means that we're in a... We're not in a bad place financially, so nobody has to do anything. We do things because we want to do them. You seem to imply that, that at least in a certain sense, things have become a little more democratic, but that's sort of when it comes to these practical issues. Is that, or is that the case across the board as a I think it's, I think you have to, you have to include everybody's point of view. And if somebody is like, way off from where everybody else is. I mean, well, then discuss it and find out what it is, what their concerns are, and why are they thinking like that. And then, you know, there is a sort of group, there is a kind, some kind of group mentality that we will all come together on something and say, yeah, okay, well, actually, this is the best approach. I have my misgivings, but, yeah. you know. I mean, it's that, that kind of... I think, as I said, you know, bands in their 20s, I mean, tend not to talk about anything ever, or groups of blokes in their 20s. You know, they just make like jokes. Um, and we kind of got to a point where we have to talk. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about stuff. And, you know, we don't always talk about the kind of emotional issues. I mean, they do come up. They can be problematic. We're still a group of men. <laughs> yeah. But there is a need for engaging in a practical sense yeah. with it. And also to, you know, not just bottle it up. You know, but if somebody has something to say, well, then they should say it. You know, I mean, there's like there's that kind of thing. You know, so I, it it is just yeah, it's a kind of democracy. I mean, the music isn't necessarily always democratic in the way it's in the way it's made, but it is a matter of how things come out the best. Everything has everybody has to understand. I think everybody does understand that we're whatever the direction of travel on a particular piece is it's, it's just to get it to its best so it shines the most 
That's kind of what I was getting at was this question of whether the band has become more democratic creatively. I mean, I talk to a lot of bands and the consensus often seems to be that at least from a certain standpoint, it needs to be a little more dictatorial. There needs to be one person with kind of a clear vision. Um, I, I, I tend to be, I tend to have a vision about things, but I'm very open to what other people have to say. I mean, Matt is very, very creative and, and makes a lot of suggestions. And you, and you allow Graham and Robert to play to their strengths. Let them do the things that they're good at doing. Why, why stop them doing what they're good at doing? Try and make them do things they can't do. You know, that's, that doesn't work, you know. Not that you can make anybody in why do anything ever. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is that it's, uh, it isn't, you know, why I get listed on the records as doing the production. That's because I produce the music. I don't produce the people, the producers, and nobody's in charge. Whitney, your tour manager, had mentioned to me that you're still in the process of kind of putting some of the final touches on. I guess maybe like a press release that was due out today. Oh, no, there's this a new record coming out? Yeah, this was always going to hit when I was on the road. Um, we have a second release this year called 1020. It's a bit of a strange history to it. There were a set of tracks which were recorded around the time of Red Bark Tree. <laughs> and uh, they were initially given away as a free EP with mail-order copies of that album. Um, we never really released them commercially. And then when we did the 2017 set, there were things in that set which were fell in the same category, which is pieces which either never really got properly recorded or have been recorded, but we do in such a different way live as to be worthwhile revisiting in the studio. Uh, they're called strays, that's the kind of general category of them. So we recorded, when we did the last session, we recorded three new pieces and there was one that had been left over from the previous album. And put it all together and said, so, wow, that sounds amazing. The original idea was to actually have those four tracks that were from the more recent ones. Um, we, we would do a, like a special edition of of the of Mind Hive and then include them as extra tracks, mm -hmm. something like that. And then so I just thought, what are we going to put in it? I mean, you know, we did a special edition for Silver Lead, the, the pictures of the band in the studio. Very nice. But how many books of pictures of bands sure. in the studio can you have? Especially these days, people yeah. have everything on the computer. I mean, you know, we've, we, and we have, we've done the special editions yeah. of the first three releases. And also, the thing that actually happened when we were doing, when we were recording a Mind Hive first initial recording was uh, we had a film crew or actually the second recordings from film crew uh, because it, that was all part of the documentary mm -hmm. the people in the film documentary so we thought well it's been filmed you know that's better than a book so then Phil from Cargo who is the boss of Cape Cargo but he's, he's our, that's our physical distribution uh, he's also our label manager was saying well you should have something for record store day and I said well why don't we put all that stuff on the record yeah. for record store day so um, the four tracks still had to be mixed so kind of mixed them like it was all done after my time got that thing together I went as master and was like yeah this is, this is amazing it's a great record you sound like genuinely surprised yeah genu genuinely surprised it's like 
you know, like the initial stories was 10 years ago. How many yeah. times you listen to that? Yeah. Not at all. But they felt sort of like castaways to you? They're just not like castaways. It's just like putting all that together mm-hmm. makes a very nice Record Store Day release. So yeah. it's totally within the spirit of Record Store Day. This is the absolute polar opposite of, you know, pink copy of Bruce Springsteen's greatest hits or whatever. Sure. You know, something yeah. that's been released 65 times before. I'm yeah. not picking up Paul Bruce, but, you know, it was the first name that popped into my sure. head. Bruce will be fine. Yeah. So... I mean, it's like, you know, and so many independent labels behave even worse than majors. Sure. You know, they just put out absolute exploitative crap and stuff on coloured vinyl and all that shit. And, you know, fans feel like they're duty-bound to buy it because you're not a real fan if you didn't buy that and you didn't queue up on Record Store Day. And it's nothing new that, that they haven't got already. Here, this is an original release for Record Store Day. That would be worth queuing up for. Also, of course... Because we have an audience outside of Record Store Day. I mean, we are going to do a regular release in June of it, at CD, um, make it more widely available. There's now an, an absurd situation, I don't know how that is in Britain, because it was in America, you don't have chains anymore for, for music. Sure. Uh, but there, are, there is still one chain in Britain for music, and that chain doesn't get in, in, involved in Record Store Day. It's like, why, why not? It's like everyone against Amazon, really. I mean, yeah. it's like... You know, Amazon will undercut, you know, I, yeah, Amazon is the king of convenience. I use, I shop at Amazon just like anybody else does. But they undercut everybody. I mean, they, sure. they, they, they put up, they put bricks and mortar shops. That's how we describe it in Britain. Under a lot of pressure. You know, those, those are supporting those shops is a reason to be involved in Record Store Day, if in the first place. It's not like because we're all so indie. It's like, no, this is about bricks and mortar retail. It's about being able to walk into a shop and hear a piece of music you've never heard before in your life and think, I think that's really good. What's that? And go ask the person behind the counter and they say, oh, it's this. Yeah. Or they've got it propped up somewhere saying, now playing or something like that. Which is an experience you're not going to get from Spotify or Apple Music. There's also a sense of obligation when you're asking people to pay that much money. People don't, people aren't, aren't used to paying, you know, money for music in the same way anymore. That you want to give them a good product. Well, I think that's. I, I think I, I'm not certainly not into the idea of hiking prices for records. I, I just mean, you know, in terms of actually going to store and buying something. Versus yeah, yeah. Well, something, there is a cult, there is still a pretty much yeah. a culture of buying buying records and CDs. I mean, people do people do buy them. Yeah, you know and that's kind of okay. Um, I, I don't look down on people who consume music digitally. I mean, apart from people who just expect to get it all for free. But if somebody going to the store and buying something, you don't want to give them a bunch of castaways because they're spending their hard-earned money yeah, on yeah, a product. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is a it's a strong record, and um, it was on the record store day list on the fifth of March. But you know that's that's not an announcement of anything. That's just a big long list, and you know our, our record would have been disappeared. So we did a physical launch today uh, with a track uh, called "Small Black Reptile," which is a new, uh, an extremely updated version of a track from Manscape. I mean, in in it's the same tune, but everything else is different. You don't strike me as somebody who's particularly nostalgic about old songs, but when the opportunity does present itself to go back and re-examine something, how different does the band then versus now feel? Um, Well, the thing is, is that um, actually, I mean, in terms of the live, because all this comes from the live set. In terms of the live set, there are four categories of thing. Okay. There is the new, new song. Mm -hmm. That is not not on any record. Mm -hmm. 
There is the new song, which is on the most recent records, in this case. Sure. Um, and then there's the new old song, which is something, especially we've chosen, might have chosen something which nobody really cares that much about. Mm-hmm. It's like you're not going to go for a Stone Cold classic and update it with a twist of, you know, a bit of rapping and yodeling. You know, you're not going to do that. But something, tracks of the Manscaped, for example. I mean, Manscaped is a, is a very unloved record. Fantastic. So there's huge mining opportunities available there. You know, to take, the, you know, strip those songs back to the core and make new versions of them. Um, so... I think it's more coming from that. And then there's, of course, old, old songs where we do attempt to perform a piece pretty much as mm-hmm. it was recorded. I mean, obviously, it's not, we're not trying sure. to do, you know, complete facts. But you want to give the audience something. Give the audience a feeling yeah. that they're getting that song and that's very familiar to them. Do you get a sense of why something like Manscaped wasn't, is underappreciated? Was it yes. just context of the time? Rubbish, or? Uh, it's rubbishly mixed. Okay. Um, the production. It's, yeah. The production is just. It's oh. just, I mean, I, um, the original version of Small Black Reptile is laughable. Yeah, because I, mean, I suspect like oftentimes when something doesn't land the way you expect it to, maybe it's a surprise to you and you don't quite get it, or maybe just some like other context you don't I have mean, control it was of. In a, it was in a period of why it didn't have a very, it's not it didn't have a direction, it had a a strong instinct of what it ought to be doing but didn't necessarily know how to do it in the 80s it probably needed to happen what happened to me in the 90s was I learned how to make productions with with electronic equipment and it sounds like something that for obvious reasons you do have to describe kind of abstractly when you're talking about direction yeah can you put your finger on what you were going after at the time well, that you I mean, were the chief. Why has always been a contemporary band? Yeah. We always wanted to have a contemporary sound. So the instinct right from the beginning, from the ideal copy, was get the machines in. We didn't really know how to make that work. And also, perhaps, uh, there was, especially in the, in the mid-80s, it was kind of an either-or. You were either a stand-up stand playing band or you were mm. doing sequence stuff. There wasn't mm-hmm. an in-between. There wasn't a way. And we were trying to kind of in-between it. And it didn't... And some of it worked, but and some of it didn't work. And it was, it was kind of difficult to figure out how to make that work. You know, we couldn't be Depeche Mode or New Order because they had completely given over to, like, with working with the machines. Whereas we were working with machines, but we were not. Um, we were also trying to incorporate live playing as well, and it was. It wasn't. Um, it was kind of. I, I, I'm. I, you know, I think there were good moments in it, but um, I think probably in general you can see how that catalogue is regarded. The eighties catalogue is probably the the, the lesser loved of the mm. Wire catalogues. I mean, there's a couple of songs that people really like, but um, and. From that, you know, obviously the least liked record is Manscaped. It's, it's famous amongst Wire yeah. fans for being the worst Wire record. It must be the most difficult part as a band, like that, you know, that that period of being past sort of the initial peak and sort of trying to figure out how to move forward. Once you move past that, well, things... the thing was is that we were selling more records. Yeah, that was the weird thing. <laughs> That's, this is yeah. you see, this is a hindsight. This is a hindsight yeah, yeah, yeah. of the last decade. Yeah. So we felt like you were moving the right way then. In some oh yeah, ways. of course, of course. We yeah. you know, we didn't have any records in any charts in the in the seventies. Yeah. 
Yeah. We had records in charts in the 80s. We were on MTV. We were, you know, we were playing to quite big audiences. I mean, we were a bigger band in the 80s than we were in the 70s. But we were a bit more, as a live band, we didn't use any machines. We played live. Yeah. Um, but, um, did that feel anachronistic at the time? Oh, uh, no, it just felt like what it felt. I mean, yeah. it was just like we did it how we did it, you know. I mean, we figured it out. But I think the, the whole thing about Manscaped, Manscaped was the first time of like, okay, we're going to make a machine record, a complete machine record, which is not designed, is not taking some songs written in and um, put to, arranged in a rehearsal room and bringing into a studio and giving them a sort of electronic treatment. This is from the ground up, starting in the rehearsal room with sequences. Was there, in, in this constant march forward, was there ever a time when you, you know, took a second, looked at it, and just realized we're very much kind of on the wrong track here, and it's time to, no. <laughs> You've trusted your instincts. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's always been the same. Yeah. Know? I mean, coming coming back around at the end of the 90s and, and into the into the last decade with the Zen period stuff felt absolutely the right thing to be doing. The idea of contemporary is an interesting one. You, you mentioned hindsight before. Oftentimes, it's a lot easier to assess what a current, what a moment looks like, you know, with a few years removed from it. Yeah. What does it mean to be contemporary in 2020 for Wire? That's a good question. It's like, um, I think, well, the thing was, is one thing, major thing that happened during the last decade is, is that music went off a timeline. Around 2005, there ceased to be that relentless march forward mm. that always had been in popular music. I mean, if I look back to when I was young and I was super excited about the records I was hearing as a kid, you know, whether it was Beatles or Motown or whatever, the idea in 1965 that you would be even slightly interested in the record that was made in the 50s was mm. just preposterous <laughs> beyond. Well, that's old people's yeah. music. Now I'm walking in the supermarket and I'm hearing music that's over 50 years old as general part of the warp and weft of... And people are referencing teenage, you know, kids who are teenagers who are just mad on the Beatles or, you know, it's like none of that, that kind of timeline doesn't really exist anymore. It's like, but it's kind of like how it's worked with tech, endless refinement. Mm. What you have now is refinement of everything. Um, point updates versus... Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So you don't... Nobody... I've not heard anything which I thought, oh, that is really something I've never heard before. How long do you feel like it's been since something has really blown your mind that way? Uh, um, probably... I think sort of... I mean, I judged... The 90s are pretty much judged by... Um, street electronic music styles mm -hmm. and I think probably dubstep was the last one that I thought yeah that was something and dubstep was just a kind of variation of drummer bass really from my own standpoint I'm I'm always trying to figure out how much of my feelings toward contemporary music are an objective reaction to it and how much of it are just a result of kind of getting older you know I mean it's you do sort of remove yourself kind of from from the context of it um yeah but I th I, I think I don't know. It just it feels to me. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. maybe I don't. Maybe I'm not hearing the right things. You know, it's possible. You know, I, I, you can't cover all bases, especially if you're if you're working on music. You're not going to be spending all your time listening to music, or any only people who are 
frankly bonkers do that does constantly pushing yourself and, and i know you do make a point to try out new things or to move in new directions on every subsequent release is part of that having an ear to the ground for contemporary culture i think it's more to do with just what this gut feeling i mean yeah i think wire has uh, people are saying the mind hive is a more electronic record than perhaps yeah i think just the synthesizers are more prominent yeah i mean <clears throat> if i listen back to I mean, that was the big difference between side A of 1020 and side B of 1020. Side A of 1020 actually hasn't got any keyboards on it at all. And side B has a lot. And I think it kind of, they were creeping in, in Red Bark Tree, but quite subtle in the background. And now they get more and more foregrounded, those, those parts. And it's just how it feels natural, you know. One of the things that's remarkable about Wire versus just about all of your contemporaries and, and just, you know, popular music bands in general is that very little of it actually, you know, how you walk the line, how, how you stay contemporary without completely pinning something to a particular moment. To be honest, yeah. I'll be super honest, I have no idea. <laughs> I really have not, you know, actually, you know, I, I found myself in a few interviews this year saying, well, you know, why is a contemporary band, whatever that means. I have really no idea anymore what that means. Yeah. People don't feel like they're coming out to an oldie show. And unlike a lot of other bands that you came up with, maybe people won't be disappointed if every song isn't from, you know, 1978. Yeah, that's because we've never, but we, we didn't trade on 1977 and 1978, and we certainly yeah. didn't trade on 1978 and 79. So there's nothing new in a yeah. way. So, so we're doing the same stuff we've always done. But that, but doesn't, but, but in a sense, that can te- keeps you more contemporary because you're not. It just keeps us, it keeps us more contemporary to ourselves. I mean, I sure. think wire is like a, to use contemporary parlance, wire is a bubble. You know, it lives in yeah. its own little universe. Yeah. Uh, any band worth its own soul, I'm sure, does. Yeah, entirely. So we do things that make sense to us. I, I was I was speaking to the Red Cross guys recently, and and his advice to um, younger bands coming up was, you know, if you have a problem, stick through it because you're either going to break up now and get back together in five years, you know, or <laughs> because you know at some point if you reach a certain level of success, somebody's going to come knocking on your door and asking you to to play shows again. Yeah. Um, do you get the feeling that? Uh, if if it the band hadn't sort of continued on the way it has, that that it would have been more kind of like a, a, a sentimental approach. I don't think. I, the thing is, to be quite honest, they and I include me in that. They mm-hmm. they aren't much interested in it, and not just not interested in doing like that circuit or doing, you know. You know, somebody, and we've put ourselves in a position now where we don't have to do that at all. Yeah. We don't get asked to do it. I mean, somebody, somebody, there's a, there's a punk festival in Britain called Rebellion, a really famous one. You know, it's like every punk band plays there. And somebody said to me in an interview, have you ever played Rebellion? I said, no. Said, have you been asked? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think people just have an expectation that like you're, of course, Wire is not going to do that? Uh, yeah, I think, I think, they, I think they might have got it by now. Yeah. But, but, you know, you know, some people, some people were like, you know, but we'll, you know, we are, we can be incredibly perverse as well, as you'll see from tonight's song selection. So yeah. What is, what is, what does perverse mean? What does perverse No, mean? I mean, not what does perverse mean, but what does perverse mean in this context? Uh, well, <laughs> and that's, uh, this, year, <laughs> this you'll have to discover. Okay. I don't want to ruin it for you. Yeah. If, you, if, you, if you've not been looking at 
setlist.com or whatever it is sure. that, they, that, that uh, you know, puts all the teasers, you know. Yeah. But if you, if you don't know what's coming, then it's better, much better that, to have it as a surprise. It's not antagonistic, though. Oh, no, not in any way. <laughs> in any way. I think perverse is a very good description. Yeah. You know, so it's okay. No, we're not going to do... Um, we're not doing a whole evening of acoustic uh, nose flute music. <laughs> That's another hard line to walk is like that, that there are groups out there and part of, you know, staying ahead of the curve for them is almost like being an affront to the audience. Yeah, no, so I, it, that's also entirely pointless, yeah. I think. I mean, in the end, people get sort of fed up with it, you know. They'll pay for it once or twice, you know. Yeah, I mean, so there are people who, yeah, lots of people who complain that, you know, uh, we, didn't, we didn't play any Wire songs. That means we didn't play anything of Pink Flag, basically, because yeah. it's the only Wire record they know. Well, yeah. I'm sorry you're not a Wire fan if that's the only Wire record you know. And, yes, you know, it's, it's it's technically, you can't be, you know. Yeah. It just isn't, just isn't the case, you know. And it sounds like finances aren't, aren't the primary thing keeping you on tour. What is it? What, you know, why well, I do think you... I mean, I, I, we want to promote the record. There is a, there is a financial imperative in, yeah. you know, if you promote the record, it'll sell more. And we feel like we have to do it. But I mean, I, you know, we have to think, I don't know when the next record's going to be. We're doing two this year, like, like London buses, you know, you wait, yeah. you wait three years for one to come yeah. and two, two come at once. But I don't know when the next one is. I'm, I'm, there's a documentary to schedule. I'm trying to schedule them for January 2022. It's not my production, but you know, I'm try, You know, we have to try and make things so that it's not like everything all comes at once. We have more possibilities of re-releases for next year. You know, so it could be 2023 before there's another Wire record, which is a normal amount of time for most bands. You know, like th- three years between records. But I mean, not... what's going to happen in t- by 2023? You know, sure. then then you know the first band member will be in their seventies. Yeah. You know, do you have to think really differently then about how you promote it, what you do, and how that and how that works? And you know, so th- these are, and also we're dealing with um, long-term legacy issues. This catalogue—it's not like you know, in twenty years' time, nobody's going to be wanting to listen to that music. I mean, in twenty years' time, there may be less of us than there are now. Yeah. So we have to think about that. You have to take that seriously. And it's it's our business. Rather than slowing down at this point, you're you're almost motivated to do to do more, to get out there more. Uh, not so much not to do more, but to think about I don't know, it's just about I, I the thing is I, I can't be precise because I'm not really sure how that works. That's sure. just, it's the thing that's in my head is that we have to somehow manage the, the period that comes after we have the promotion of Mindhive and, and yeah. 20 so that's a year of work next year there will be a bit of spin on from that um, but then what comes after that we have the documentary coming we don't really have to do a lot for that but it will be a, a piece of presence of wire and that starts to look like a retrospective ex- exhibition that, you know, that so gets in that oldies act territory. You're getting to that. Well, not yeah. so much the oldies act, but more like if you look at it from a fine art point of view. Yeah. It's like here's here's a sort of here the, the career statements are coming then, you know, and then you wonder 
what you do. I, I, I would like to think that we won't just stop making records, but I'm not sure how much touring we'll do forever. Do you still get pleasure out of the act of touring? Is, is that still enjoyable, or does it just feel like work at this point? Um, depends. Well, I mean, this has been hard work, obviously. Uh, a, the, the jet lag. Tour, yeah. okay. a, the jet lag, B, the coronavirus. The fact that, you know, we were supposed to finish up with South by Southwest and that got cancelled and you know we're supposed to be playing a show in Cambridge in two days time and you know Massachusetts just got put on you know I don't know what they call it general alert you know Mm -hmm. I mean it's you know the state of emergency so what does that mean what does any of that mean to us you know and you know is there going to be a cost attached to us getting home early or something like that I, I don't know I mean, we are going to, we, right now, we still have two shows planned in Austin. But whether they will happen or not, I mean, it may be that Austin will suddenly say, no, anybody coming in. Or, you know, I don't know. Is there a fear at this point of losing momentum that if you do, you know, wait too long to put out a record or tour? No. No. no I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm, not so, I'm not so worried about it. I, I, actually, interesting, my records sell anyway. Yeah. To be honest, yeah, uh, there's still a bit more. You get there are things that happen when you tour. When you tour, you know your Spotify and your digital turn turns mm-hmm. goes up. You know, so it's not necessarily the songs you're playing or even sure. the new album. It's in, in partly the new album. Yeah, everything increases. So, that, so there is a there is something, but it, it, nothing is ever as precise. You know, it's not like if you do this, you get that. Sure. It doesn't necessarily work like that. Not not in my experience, anyway. You specifically seem to wear a lot of different hats in and around, you know, the the, the bands, the, the label. How did that start for you? I mean, did, did you feel like it, did you feel a necessity to move over to the business side, to be in charge of the books, things um, like that? Well, the thing was is that um, when Mark and I moved to Britain, we lived in Brussels in the in the 90s, um, or in, well, in the 80s, and we moved in the early 90s to, to London. And we decided that we were going to do a production company, but then we were advised by Daniel Miller to do a record company, and so we started Swim. And, and we did 10 years of Swim, and that was before Wire came back round again. But by the time Wire came back round again, it sort of seemed inevitable that we were going to end up being our own record company and they didn't know anything about how to run a record company and I did. Yeah. What was that process like? It was just it was just a you know, complete inevitability. <laughs> it just kind of figured it. Over the years, it's kind of figured out. Yeah. I mean, I've learned how to mix records and I learned how to release records and it's kind of what I do. Uh, it's But obviously, it involves a lot of trust. You know, people have to trust me. Everybody loses. You know, if if there's a breakdown in trust, the whole the band loses. Every everybody loses, including me. So there's no point in kind of making a big thing out of it. I try and be as transparent as possible in the way that I deal with everything. 
It's, I mean, it's just part of it. It's naturally how I feel anyway and how I think it, should, it ought to be. Is it hard for you to, to trust other people? Is it hard for you to delegate authority? I mean, obviously you're working with people. You have a manager. Um, we don't have a manager. Or you have the tour manager. No, he's not a tour manager. Well, it's front of house engineer. Front of, okay. You are working with some people. You know. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, we all work with promotion people. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know Caroline. I know so Caroline, we, yeah. Caroline. We have, you know, Kate, Kate and you in, in the UK. I mean, with this distributor promo in different places, there's distributors that, that I tend to work with, there's live agents, I tend to have, you know, everybody yeah. knows them, but, you know, I tend to have the relationships with them. Yeah, sometimes it comes a bit, it's a bit too much for me. I mean, everybody comes to me. Do you feel, though, just generally when it comes to the music and the final product that you're a bit of a micromanager? Oh, uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, I try, I mean, it's just a matter of, you know, it's not, as I said before, it's not rocket science, you know, yeah. putting out records. I mean, it's all kind of about timing. I mean, when we did Read and Burn Mom, which was the first big Pink Flag release, I mean, we literally bunged it out. We did no promotion at all. And we sold a shitload of records in a really short period of time. It was like, whoa, what happened there? <laughs> and uh, you realise there's a market for it. You know, people want it. And then, obviously, now... You know, you can't get away without paying money for a promotion. We do pay for a promotion and all that kind of stuff. You just learn it. You just learn it. I'm not saying this is the only way of doing it. I mean, there's yeah. end ways of doing it, you know. But. I mean, it, do, it does seem increasingly like, you know, just because of the way the music industry is structured these days, that people have to do that, that, that a lot of people at a, 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 up to a certain level um, have to wear a lot of different hats because there's... Does, you know, does a painter, you know, take a sketch to a man in an office and sure. say, you know, if you give me money, I'm going to make this into a finished painting. Yeah. You know, and it all depends on that taste of that person, whether they, you're going to get the money or not. Sure. So, so okay, you, a lot of people know how to make records now. And then, yeah, and anybody can get, you know, a thousand records in their front row. You just have to pay for them. You know, it's like how you get them out of the front room into people's houses, into people's hands. How do you build fans and yeah, but obviously a lot of people are doing that through social media and some people spend way more time on social media than they do doing anything yeah. else. This is, I, I find this, I, I'm quite bored by that. I, I'm the, that's my weakest side. I, I, I really don't enjoy that side of it at all. I noticed that the track list for the, the 1020 announcement really kind of has a breakdown very specifically of you know what it sounds like sonically, the, the, the drum beats, things like yeah. that. And in a sense, you're almost kind of playing your own critic. Uh, well, actually, there was um, uh, Graham Duff who wrote the press release, and that's how he writes about the music. Yeah. He's, he's a huge fan, and he's and he knows those pieces. Yeah, you know, he knows where they came from, and knows where they're going to. He's heard them us playing them live. You know, it is uh, ten twenty years very much rooted in the live set. Yeah, you know, I, I, when I tend to approach things creatively, I I don't know what it is in me, but once I'm done with something, I'm kind of just done with it. I want it out in the world. I yeah, mainly something. Mainly, I'm like that, but you know. Revisiting is always interesting. Yeah. It's about the opportunity. It's about whether you think something was really finished. I mean, you take something like, you know, German Shepherds. I mean, there's, there is no definitive 80s version of German Shepherds. There are some not very good versions. And that, when that first came up, that, that was a, I knew it was a great song. Was, was it a good exercise in sort of figuring out where you're at and how you've progressed as a songwriter to revisit some of these things? Sometimes it's just having the skill to just trip something back to what actually it was. 
yeah. and then and then and then re-elaborate it rather than just get too carried away with how it was put together you know originally that's probably a useful skill too is being able to sort of strip something down to you know as they say like kill your darlings to take out all the the unnecessary pieces and figure out what works yeah if, if, again especially if so, nobody feels particularly attached to something then it doesn't really you know it's just stuff after all these years, obviously, you know, the people who know Wire know Wire, but do you feel like there's still, you know, in your in your 60s, do you feel like there's still an image that needs to be cultivated? I don't mind cultivation an image, but I feel like, you know, we could st- we could reach a bigger audience than the one that we reach. I don't know what our image is. I, I don't think people are coming for how we look. That's for sure. <laughs>